we are going to do something a little bit different today. I've thought long and hard about this, <clears throat> and uh, I know a lot of pastors kind of shy away from anything which you might call theological or even apologetic. But there's been something that's really been burning me lately, and that is this new approach to talking Christians out of their faith, which is called street epistemology. And don't worry, I will explain it all as we go. And uh, I, I decided to title this discussion point, Surviving Street Epistemology. Because many of us are actually going to experience it at some time. This is the, the new way of attack on Christianity and other religions by the atheists. The Richard Dawkins and the Sam Harrises and the Christopher Hitchings of this world, Hitchens I should say, of this world, through their, their rhetoric, their books, their invective, have not actually persuaded Christians to forsake their faith. They've been angry, they've been militant, but they haven't really persuaded Christians to abandon their faith. But there's a new move among atheists which is succeeding. And it is called street epistemology. And I want to not only explain it, but I want to tell you how to survive it. And I would have to say that I have never sensed as strongly before the presence of the Holy Spirit as I prepared this. I've been thinking about it for a little while now. Uh, yesterday I spent four solid hours uh, preparing for this morning. And I, I just had that sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure that I'll actually finish everything today. That doesn't worry me because we can all come back next week. I also felt moved to pray this morning that, that those of us who perhaps have been attending sporadically in recent times would actually, this is so important. This is so important. The role of the church is to equip the saints for works of service. You will never be able to undertake works of service if you haven't been equipped to know beyond any doubt why you believe. And unfortunately, we don't actually instruct people all that often these days about why, why you believe. And it's something which has really been burning my heart in recent times. And I, I really want to spend some time today, and possibly next week as well, equipping you so that if ever you are caught in conversation with a street epistemologist, your faith will not be shaken. And so here we go. First a reminder, way back, Early last year, I shared with you that I felt God saying to me to, to teach on faith until I exhausted the subject. Now, I'm not sure that I've exhausted the subject yet, but God's shown me a few other things to teach on. This is very important to our faith. But I want to remind you of the definition of faith that I shared with you early last year. It was in mid-January. This is faith. Firm persuasion based on relationship with God through Jesus. 
producing a full acknowledgement of God's revelation of his truth. Can I just get somebody maybe to turn the back lights on for me? Yeah, that might make it a bit easier, especially if somebody wants to take notes. Last week, I, I did remind you of this definition of faith. And I also <coughs> explained that we don't simply believe in Jesus. That our understanding of Jesus is based on firm historical evidence. And I very quickly listed some of the elements of that evidence. And I will spend more time today addressing evidence. In John 14, 9, Jesus said to his disciples, He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? There's a word in that definition I used last year that is very, very important, and that is the word persuasion. Because one of the things we need to understand is how are we persuaded? How are we persuaded? Well, it's based on relationship with God through Jesus. But what makes us think First, that Jesus ever lived, and second, that anything he had to say had any relevance anyway. Before we move on, the uh, Greek word which is translated faith is pistis, which uh, some people might like saying that word. But it actually means persuasion, conviction, or trust. And uh, I think it's probably not a bad start for us to understand the word faith as trust. You see, trust is born of evidence. We see little Evangeline, we see the Hamilton children, they trust us, I'm talking about us here today, because they have evidence that this is a safe place for them to be in. They don't trust us blindly. They trust us because they have a firm foundation for that trust. So every time you read the word faith in the Bible, Bear in mind that it's about trust which is based on evidence that firmly persuades or convicts us. It's not just some kind of loose, emotional, ephemeral, airy-fairy thing at all. The context of that scripture from John 19 was Jesus predicting his own death. And uh, his disciples were totally perplexed because they still saw him as this king who was going to overthrow the political order and the religious order of the day. 
And then he shares with them that he's going to die. And so his disciples are confused and perplexed. And this verse from John 14, which is on the screen, is his response, Jesus' response to Philip. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Show us the evidence. And Jesus replies, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the works you have seen me do. I'm going to return to that thought a little later on. I tell you the truth, said Jesus, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. But just hold that scripture in your mind for a little while if you can. I just want to turn now, and I might get really angry when I speak these words. <laughs> I'm not angry at you, okay? Just, I'm not, if I shout, I'm not shouting at you. But here's the definition that the atheists use in relation to faith. And uh, these kinds of definitions go back at least to the time of Mark Twain, whose real name, of course, was Samuel Clemens. This is what he said. Faith is believing something you know ain't so. How stupid is that? Well, I'm sure he got a laugh out of it. Here's uh, Richard Dawkins, who's still alive, of course, who retired a few years ago. I think he was Professor of Public Science at Oxford University. And he's written three or four best-selling books about atheism, or at least they're books that are uh, critical of Christianity and other religions. Uh, Richard, and remember, you've got to remember this, Richard Dawkins is a professor, or a retired professor from the University of Oxford, which is one of the top three universities in the world. All right? One of the so-called best universities in the world where the professors supposedly have the brightest minds on the planet. But this is how he defines faith. Faith being belief that isn't based on evidence is the principal vice of any religion. Faith being belief that isn't based on evidence is the principal vice of any religion. Now, if you can demonstrate that his definition is wrong, then he's got nothing at all to say. He's got nothing at all to say. Let me take you to another definition. And this one is similar, but it's very, very important. This is from a book. It's called A Manual for Creating Atheists. And uh, the primary author, or the author, is uh, Peter Bogosian. It's um, a hard name to spell. 
it's probably even harder to um, pronounce because my understanding of English would suggest we should say Peter Bogosia, but it's Bogosia. He defines faith in this way. Faith is belief without evidence and pretending to know things you don't. If we can demonstrate that faith is something different, he has nothing to say. Now most of the, the militant atheists use a definition of faith along these lines. If we can show them that their definition is wrong, they have nothing to say. This book was a bestseller. It was published towards the end of uh, 2013. And it was Peter Bogosian who coined the term street epistemology, which I will, I will explain what it all means shortly. Now, just as an aside, a few weeks ago, there was an article in um, uh, higher ed, it's, a, it's a inside higher ed, it's an email I get on a regular basis. I've, um, I've been getting these emails for about 25 years. Very good, reputable source. They reported that Peter Bogosian uh, was in trouble with his university for a hoax. And uh, what he did, well, I'll just read this. this. This actually comes from the Inside Higher Ed email. A hoax revealing that academic journals had accepted fake papers on topics from canine rape culture in dog parks to fat bodybuilding to an adaption of Mein Kampf met with applause and scorn in the fall, that is the, the autumn from the United States. Fans of the project tended to agree with the hoaxes that critical study scholars will validate anything aligned with their politics. Critics said that the researchers acted in bad faith, wasting editors and reviewers' time and very publicly besmirching academia in the process. The story was covered by nearly every major news outlet. Now the controversy has flirted up again with news that one of the project's authors faces disciplinary action at his home institution. Peter Bogosian, an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University, and the only one of three researchers on the project to hold a full-time academic position, was found by his institutional review board to have committed research misconduct. Specifically, he failed to secure its approval before proceeding with the research on human subjects, who were the editors of the journals who fell for his hoax. In this case, the journal editors and reviewers he was tricking with his absurd but seemingly well-researched papers. Some seven of 20 were published in gender studies and other journals. Seven were rejected, others were pending before the spook was uncovered. So what this guy did was write rubbish and submit it to academic journals and it got published. And uh, now he's being told. He didn't fill in the right ethics forms because he was experimenting on human subjects, being the rather stupid editors and rather stupid reviewers of rather stupid academic journals that peddle rather stupid ideas. So somebody's out to get him. <laughs> but it also might say something about the scruples he might or might not have when he conducts his own academic work. So what the atheists generally have in common is that they define faith to be blind faith. 
Faith without evidence. Faith which is not underpinned by firm persuasion. Let me take you to some Christian definitions. This is J.P. Moreland, a very well-known, well-respected theologian. Biblically, faith is a power or skill to act in accordance with the nature of the kingdom of God, a trust in what we have reason to believe. John Lennox, I love the writing of John Lennox. He's a, he's a scientist, um, also at Oxford University. Faith is a response to evidence, not a rejoicing in the absence of it. Faith is a response to evidence, not a rejoicing in the absence of it. So you can see there's a, a wide gulf between the straw man that the atheists try to develop and the truth of the Christian faith. Now unfortunately, a lot of Christians do have blind faith because they don't know why they believe and they can't defend themselves against the definitions that the atheists peddle. But as soon as you can say faith is based on reason, faith is based on evidence, a reasonable person will come to faith because of the evidence. They have nothing to say. And the hundreds of thousands of books that they've sold have nothing to say in the public square. Right? That's a phrase you can use. You have nothing to say if you define faith as blind faith. If you define faith as belief without reason. You've got nothing to say to me because that's not the faith that I have. You see that? They've got nothing to say. Because they don't even define faith in the right way. But they get away with it. Because too many Christians don't know why they believe. I like having a look at the Bible. I'm not a theologian, but one thing I do is I look at the Bible and I get my own basis for living from the Word of God. And I want to share with you just a couple of things that the Bible has to say about faith. Now, I, I could actually probably do four or five discussion points and go through verse by verse. But I just want to give you an outline, enough for you to remember, not too much to confuse you, but a couple of points to help you remember. That Greek word pistis, which fundamentally means trust based on firm assurance because of the evidence I see, occurs 244 times in the New Testament. So you see, faith is pretty important. 244 times. Now if you're looking for a definition of faith, you will find it in Hebrews 11, verse 1. We often refer to Hebrews 11 as the faith chapter. What we tend to remember, of course, is the names, at least of some of the people. We remember that Abraham's faith was accounted to him as righteousness, so God saw him as being righteous without the need of law. 
But sometimes we overlook the very important words in verse 1 of Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or evidence in some translations of things not seen. Now, I've heard this verse spoken of, I suppose, 10 or 15 times in my uh, Christian walk. And uh, mostly the emphasis has been on the idea of things hoped for and things that are not seen. And you see, if you carry around in your head those words, you are likely to have blind faith. It's stuff I'm hoping for, it's stuff I can't see. And the atheist ridicule Christians who say, yeah, I believe in stuff I can't see. But have a look at what the definition actually says. There are two pretty important words in there. One is assurance and the other one is conviction or evidence. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction or evidence of things not seen. Now it's fortuitous that this morning when Ainsley was leading us in communion, part of her message was about something we could not see. How do we know there was carbon dioxide in the vase? How do we know? It's not a trick question. Yeah, we saw the evidence because the candle went out. Now, if it was methane gas that had been produced in there, we would have had an explosion. Now, you can't see methane gas, you sure can smell it. But you can't smell carbon dioxide, it's odorless, tasteless. You can't see it. But you see, we saw the evidence. Did you have any reason to doubt Ainsley when she told you there was carbon dioxide inside the vase? And when you saw the evidence, that would have merely confirmed the truth to you. So you see, our faith is not based on the things we can't see, it's based on the evidence of the things we can't see. It's an evidential faith, not an I can't see anything faith. The atheists are just plain wrong. And I think it's an absolute insult to academics, and I am one, when supposedly the finest professors on the planet can't even get something as simple as that correct. They can't even get something as simple as that. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians can't either. But they're not taught it. But guess what? You're in the right church. Because <laughs> we try and teach the truth around here. Faith is not wishful thinking. That's what hope is in the context of the world. It's just wishful thinking. I hope I might win a lotto. You know? 
I hope I might marry a beautiful girl one day. Well, not me, I'm not saying that at all. That's already sorted for me. That's just wishful thinking. But see, our faith is based on evidence strong enough to give us assurance. It's based on evidence strong enough to give us assurance. Okay, so if an atheist happens to engage you in conversation, know that definition. Know that the Greek word which is translated faith 244 times in the New Testament, it's got nothing to do with belief without evidence. It has everything to do with an assurance that is based on evidence. What did Jesus have to say? Are you laughing at me? <laughs> I told you I'd get a little bit emotional about this. I, I just feel so strongly about this new wave, this new tactic that the atheists are using, which is undermining Christians who do not understand why it is they believe what they believe. This is a slightly longer, uh, long passage, but I, I really think it's worth reading this. Again, you know, we've probably heard many, many times the, the story of the group of friends who brought their paralysed friend to Jesus for healing. Jesus was in a building, he was teaching people, they were listening, they couldn't get in, so they managed to make a hole in the ceiling and they, they let the man down. You'll remember all that, I'm sure. Yeah. But I actually want you to remember something different today. So seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Well, what's this got to do? with faith. Well, you will probably remember this when I remind you, but the Jews at that time believed there was a direct connection between fulfilling the law and good health. Sickness was evidence of unrighteousness, and unrighteousness simply arose because somebody was unable to keep the law. That's why Jesus said, which is easier? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your mattress and go for a walk. Because in the Jewish mind, either meant exactly the same thing. The man could not have picked up his mat and walked if his sins weren't forgiven in the Jewish mind. Now the, so that's one important point. The second important point is this. Jesus was proving who he was by his work, which was to heal that man. 
Because in the Jewish mind, of course, only God could forgive. Jesus was saying, I am God. Is it easier for me to say, you're forgiven, or pick it up and walk? So he ended up saying to the man, pick it up and walk. And what you read between the lines, of course, is that Jesus is saying here, I'm demonstrating I am God. Do you understand the Trinity? That's not blasphemy. Jesus is a member of the Trinity. Well, I shouldn't say a member because they're not three God, three, three members, but three, uh, three expressions. So he was saying, here is proof. There were eyewitnesses, not the least of which were the gospel authors. So Jesus here proved by his works that he was who he said he was. And if we go back to the, uh, whoops, sorry, I've gone too many, too far. If we go uh, back to the passage from uh, John 14, Jesus uh, continued from the little scrap of the, uh, the scripture that I had up on the screen by saying, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. He's saying, if you can't believe I am who I say I am, watch what I do. You've heard the expression, you know, uh, do as I say, not as I do. But in fact, people make their judgments on the basis of what you do, not what you say. Isn't that true? So Jesus is saying, listen, you guys, if you can't believe what I tell you, watch what I do. We know that Jesus went about healing people and doing good. He did all the kind of stuff that God did. And so he's saying, judge me on the basis of my works. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. And then he goes on to say, I am going to send to you the help of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we have that helper today. And it is through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we actually perform the works and the greater works. Thereby demonstrating that God exists. Now look, I'm not going to get through all this today, but that's okay. I do want to do one more slide though because I want to address the question of why we believe Jesus. Okay? Now see, you and I have not seen Jesus as a man living and walking and talking among the people. What I've read, those quotes from Jesus that I read to you, that's historical. So the question for us today is, why should we believe that any of that's true? Because okay. there are plenty of atheists who will tell you, look, it's all myth. It's just stories. There's no truth in it. Bertrand Russell, who was a, an atheist philosopher, he actually wrote, 
Look, we can't even be sure Jesus lived. Well, that's a load of codswallop. There is mountains and mountains of evidence that Jesus was an historical figure. Whether or not he was the Son of God is a more difficult issue to address. But there's mountains of evidence that he lived historically. I want to share with you a number of reasons why we can believe Jesus. We can believe what he said as it is recorded in the Gospels. So the first is that witnesses wrote about him. So for example, we've got the four Gospels. People who lived with him wrote about him. Second, we see the works today. We see the works in the church. I have seen miracles with my own two eyes. So I've seen the evidence that what Jesus said about us doing the same works and greater works than him, I've seen that evidence with my own eyes. And I know there are others in here who have too. I'm talking here about physical miracles where you can see and confirm with your own eyes that something has happened. Jesus said it would happen. We sometimes call these things signs and wonders in the church today. Now, you might say, well, I don't know about that. Those people you call witnesses, you wrote about him, it could all be a load of bunkum. It could all be just made-up stories. It could be some kind of great conspiracy to deceive one-third of humanity. Well, the Bible itself has internal evidence to suggest that it is a trustworthy source. For example... Rabbis say that as many as 456 Old Testament prophecies and passages apply to the Messiah. They don't agree that Jesus is the Messiah, but they've identified 456 prophecies and passages. There are at least 68 that are very, very easy to prove. And, and it's irrefutable that those Old Testament prophecies refer to Jesus, or at least to the Messiah. The next point is there is a whole stack of archaeology. In fact, as, as time marches on, there are more and more archaeological discoveries that verify the veracity of the Bible as an historical document. Next, there are flood stories in of about six or seven other uh, civilizations, the Sumerians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, Hindus, Chinese, Mexicans, Algonquins, whoever they are, and Hawaiians. They all have a flood story very similar to that in our Bible, which is suggestive that it actually happened. And of course, there is geological evidence and so on as well. Now, there are not all that many external texts. Now, I mean, this just makes me laugh when atheists say, well, there's no external corroboration of the stuff in your Bible. Duh! There weren't written records kept back then. The Bible wasn't written at the time of Genesis. Duh! Right? It was actually written down a long time after and the historical record was passed on orally. Guess what? 
That's what's happened in every civilization on earth. So there ain't nothing different about the Bible. Now, as it turns out, there are six or seven quite reliable sources in terms of New Testament history and the historical life and death of Jesus. So although there are not many external texts, you wouldn't expect there to be. So whether or not we've got a reasonable faith cannot sink or swim, as it were, on the basis of external texts. Another point, I'm really sorry that I'm keeping you, but I bought you guys the most beautiful fruitcake homemade at the Paradise Point Church, Uniting Church garage sale yesterday. We went, we went down there, we got up really early. We left home at 20 past five, because we had to be back here, you know, in time for breakfast. Oh, did I buy some flannelette? Ladies who were sewing for the refugees in uh, Uganda, we bought bag loads of flannelette. I bought $40 worth of flannelette. That is going to make like about 3,000 sandy packs. Anyway, that's all by the But I also bought a fruitcake. I walked past. Nah. You know, nah. And then I just felt the Holy Spirit say, go on, bless these ladies and buy two. So I bought two. We've got one out there now and there's another one in the freezer. But we're on. Later on. <laughs> Love it. Alright, next point. I won't keep you much longer, I promise. I hate it when preachers do that because you know they're lying. <laughs> Christianity works. <laughs> How about that? Not only does it work in our individual lives so we ourselves become living testimonies of the power of Christianity in our lives, but there's statistical evidence to suggest, for example, that in Africa now, because of Christianity, economic development is starting to proceed. Why is that? Because Christianity is the only religion in which aspirations to be better next week or next year or whenever are okay. It's the only religion where what you might call a developmental mindset exists. Unbelievable, hey. And there's very rigorous, rigorous research that shows that far from the missionaries undermining the um, societies in which they operated in, say, the 17th, 18th, 19th, etc. centuries, by bringing democratic processes, they actually, and I, I don't, I'm using this word carefully, but they civilised nations. And of course, if you look at the history of countries like Australia and many of the Western countries, we are well off today because of our Christian foundations. And you can look at many, many countries in Africa. China, they were once rich. You know, God blessed everyone on the planet. But their own social and economic systems drove them to poverty. I'm actually speaking at a breakfast in a couple of weeks on biblical economics and I'm really excited about that because biblical economics has actually delivered economic and societal and personal development. Christianity works. There's a couple of other things I want to add. Uh, one is that another reason why we, we trust 
is that for many of us, people we trust ourselves have come to a faith based on evidence. And all of us look to our role models to instruct and to advise, to coach, to mentor. And uh, for many of us, we've had somebody in our lives who's encouraged us to come to the same faith as this. And then finally, as I mentioned a little earlier, our own personal experience. Now, you won't win an argument with an atheist by saying, well, my personal experience tells me something uh, different to what you're trying to talk into. But we also do know, based on our personal experience, that God is real, that Jesus is our living hope because we have relationship. We have relationship. Now, an atheist probably won't understand that, so there's not a lot of point in us trotting that out as an evidential basis for our faith. At the end of the day, it's up to the atheist whether or not they accept the evidential basis for our faith. But you see, we have an evidential basis. We don't have a blind now, for everybody who's wondering what epistemology is, I'm really sorry. That's on the next slide. <laughs> and we'll do that next week. <laughs> okay. Anyway, we've, I've been very, very rude.